Well, good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn over to Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is what we're going to walk through together this morning. Uh, I'm continuing a series that's been uh, kicked off by our other elders in the last few weeks. I've been able to just sit out there with you guys and soak up such helpful and encouraging teaching from the other guys as, they, as they've been working through earlier psalms. And, you know, for three weeks now, I've been recharging and storing up ideas, and you guys are in for a super long sermon this morning. You just wait till you see what I've gotten from those guys' teachings that I'm going to pass on to you this morning. It's going to be awesome. What these guys have, uh, have, been, have been telling us already, and what I'm going to continue talking about today, is, is the modeled response to redemption that the psalms give us. Earlier in the year, we talked about Exodus a lot. We talked about it not just as an interesting historical sequence of events that happened in the life of one particular nation, but as a kind of paradigm that shows who God is and what we can expect from him as those who look to him for grace and mercy in times of need. Exodus, the story of what happened to Israel and Egypt, has been saved for thousands of years so that we would know who we're dealing with when we deal with God. We talked a lot about that over the early months of this year. And then this summer, what we decided to do was to to spend some time looking at the way the Psalms talk about the Exodus. The Psalms are, 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 are regularly coming back to those events and responding to them. And just like the Exodus story itself is not meant just as an interesting historical story, but as an invitation to us to join into it and make it our story. So all these Psalms that respond to the Exodus, they're not just meant... As, as kind of historical antiquarian examples of, of, of Israel's singing, but as models that we can take up for ourselves, as models for how we should respond to the redemption that we've experienced. The Psalms invite us into a larger pattern of worship that carries on for thousands of years and that carries us up and takes us forward, shows us how to, how to respond to God's grace. Now, What we're going to do this morning and next Sunday morning is to look at a pair of psalms, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106, that very clearly go together. They cover a lot of the same terrain, refer to the same events, but they respond to those events in very different ways that help fill out our response to God's grace in our lives. They play off one another while covering the same ground. So Psalm 105 that we're looking at this morning, it's a very positive response. You won't see anything negative in it. It's all about what it should look like for us to experience God's grace and then respond to him. Psalm 106, covering the same ground, is all about how Israel responded to him. Far from this ideal that Psalm 105 lays out for us, it's a sad story. It's a negative response, something we're meant to avoid in our response to God's grace. So today we look at how we should respond to redemption. Next week we'll look at how not to respond to redemption. Now, one thing I want to tell you, one more thing just to set us up this morning before I get into the, the content of this psalm. Um, this psalm um, is, is set up in, in two major parts. The first part, the first six verses, is a kind of introduction. These first six verses are where we're going to spend almost all of our time today. These are verses that give us several commands. They're the ones that call us to respond to God's grace. You'll notice that as we read them in just a moment. It's full of straightforward commands on what to do now, having experienced God's grace. The second and much, much longer part of the psalm is just a record of God's grace. It just catalogs the things that God did to save his people. 
one after another after another example. So what we're going to do, we will read that section later on in the sermon so you can see what work this psalm is doing, but we're going to try to really dig in on what this psalm calls for, the response to God's grace that it models in those first six verses. So what I want to invite you to do now is to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read Psalm 105 verses 1 to 6, and then we'll work our way through the rest of the psalm later on in the sermon. This is God's word to us this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He's done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to show you guys three responses from these first six verses that model for us. They don't just show us how Israel did respond to God's grace, but model for us how we should respond to the redemption we've known in Jesus. Three responses You can follow along in your worship guide where they're printed if you want to take some notes as we move forward. So here's the first one. It's the first line out of the the gate in this psalm. We respond to redemption by giving thanks. Response number one, give thanks. That's That's the main work of the psalm is to sort of populate prayers of thanksgiving, to fill them up with some content. You can see that in the very first line. The first thing that the psalm says is, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And that's a call that hangs over everything else that comes later. In fact, this psalm is just one of many psalms that call for thanksgiving like this. It's one of the most important and, um, and frequent categories of psalms that you'll find as you work through all of the psalms. There's several different major categories that a lot of them plug into. Thanksgiving psalms are one of the most common. And at the bedrock core, foundational response to God's redemption, we're called to give thanks. Now, maybe that sounds obvious. Um, so obvious that it's hard to really know what more we would do with that. But what I want to do for a few minutes is try to just chew on this call to give thanks for a little bit. Break it down a little bit more to try to understand where this psalm is coming from and what it would look like, what effect it would have on our lives if we took up this call to give thanks. I want to show you the work this psalm is doing and then why that work is so valuable. What the, work is, what, the, what the psalm is doing and why that work is so valuable to try to help us understand why thanksgiving is so crucial in our lives. So here's the work this psalm is doing. Like all thanksgiving psalms, this psalm is calling us to build a kind of perspective on life. It's cultivating in us a perspective on life that's defined by God's grace in redeeming us. So, it's much more than just a call to to an act of thanksgiving. It's it's not just calling Israel to a specific kind of prayer. It's calling Israel to a whole perspective of gratitude as a kind of baseline view of themselves in the world. That they go through life, they interact with what comes as grateful people. People who've been loved well by God. Now, to get that experience to absorb that perspective so that what you experience, you experience as a grateful person. What you've got to do is pay attention. You need an active, careful, 
and detailed catalog of God's goodness. That's what this psalm is meant to do. That's how this psalm cultivates a perspective of thanksgiving or gratitude. Uh, when, uh, when my oldest son was in his first year of Cub Scouts, I remember one of the earliest exercises they did at one of their little meetings was they, got, they each got a, 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 a string that would go around a square that would be one square foot. And the exercise was go out into nature, your yard, a park, wherever. Go out into nature, set that one square foot string down in a square, and just see what's in there. What's inside that one square foot? Here's a whole world of life in that little square foot. Maybe you'll see bugs, maybe multiple kinds. They're supposed to log them. What do you see? What's moving around in there? You'll see plants, maybe lots of different kinds of plants. You'll see dirt and stuff that's under the dirt. You'll see, I mean, who knows what you'll see? The point is that when you pay attention, there's a catalog of goodness there. There's a wealth of information that you might have been blind to. That All you've got to do is just, is just look, and it's there. I've been thinking about that exercise as I've worked through Psalm 105. I think that's, if, if it's true of the natural world that God has made, that the closer we look, the more we see, that the closer we look, the more beautiful we recognize this world to be, then it's especially true of, of history and of what God has done to us and for us in our experience of the world. There is in redemption, in what God has done to, to show grace to his people, in Exodus, but preeminently in Jesus, there is in redemption an inexhaustible well of goodness to draw from. An infinitely large onion to peel back. Pick your metaphor, I don't know. It's huge and inexhaustible. But you've got to pay attention. This psalm, Psalm 105, it, it takes a one square foot string and lays it down around one period of Israel's history and catalogs, journals, what you could see about God in that time. Its history begins with Abraham and moves through the Exodus. It's a call to Israel out of the busyness of their everyday to just see what wonders are here. And I want us to take up that call. We're just gonna, I'm just going to read the rest of the psalm for you now. And as we read it, I want you to notice that at every major point in this psalm, notice who's doing work and what work he's doing. At every point in this psalm, we're not told what Israel's doing. We're not told what other major players are doing. We're told what God is doing. The verbs are about God and his activity to save Israel. Think of this psalm as a journal recording what happened in this one time, this one season of Israel's life together. Pick up it with me in verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. He remembers the word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. First thing in the journal entry first journal entry here is God's decision based on his sheer mercy to promise good things to Abraham and his descendants. Verse 12 picks it up. When they were few in number, of little account, before there was even a nation of Israel, they were sojourners in this land that God had promised them, wandering, wandering from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people. He, talking about God, allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. 
He protected his people when they were vulnerable. Verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land, that was him. He did that. And broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. God put his man at the throne of Egypt. For what? Verse 23, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And what did God do next? He sent Moses then, his servant, and Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They didn't rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation of their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for their covering. He, this, is, this is the portion of the story out in the wilderness. And a fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail. That's a way to put it, isn't it? They asked. We're going to get into that story next week. They did a lot more than ask. There was a lot of complaining. It was not a good time for Israel. They didn't deserve more grace from God's hand. The way this psalm puts it, though, they asked and he gave them what they asked for. He brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out and flowed through the desert like a river. Why? Back where we started, he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes. And observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Now friends the details of this history. These are, this is ground we've covered already. What I want you to notice this morning. Is not so much the ins and outs of all this history. As the reason that this psalm puts this history. Back in front of Israel and in front of us. The work this psalm is doing. By cataloging all these examples of God's goodness in Israel's life. The work this psalm is doing is building in us a perspective of gratitude. Because this psalm, God and the God behind it, who inspired it, knows how easy it is for us to lose perspective. Lots of things grab our attention. We have to fight. We have to discipline ourselves to fight. 
for relentless attention to the undeserved and unexplainable and surprising, even shocking goodness of God to us. We have to fight for perspective where our baseline experience in this world is as those who've received grace. Now, this psalm catalogs God's goodness towards Israel in their, especially in their experience in Egypt and in the wilderness. But what I said at the very beginning is that this psalm is just really modeling for us how we ought to respond. It's not limited to those events any more than the Exodus is the last thing we know about God's goodness and grace towards his people. These, these events and this psalm's response to them are meant to model for us what to look for from God now, especially in light of Jesus. As Christians, what we believe is that, is that Exodus was only a small taste, a foretaste of the kind of grace God would show to his people who were enslaved to something far greater and far more powerful than Egypt ever had been. The Bible tells us that each one of us has been born into slavery to sin, sin that captures our hearts from our earliest, our earliest life, that guides us into things that God has told us are not good for us, that stirs up in us desires for things that he's told us uh, not to pursue. The Bible tells us that, that even though every day we have woken up to, to lives full of his gifts to us, breath and food and shelter, a beautiful world to enjoy, people to enjoy it with, though his gifts are all around us, on every day that we've ever lived, rather than receiving those gifts gratefully from him, we have only wanted more and treated even those gifts themselves as if they were ours and not from him. In other words, the Bible describes us not simply as helpless victims of powers that we can't control, but as willing and even eager rebels against God's goodness in our lives. And the Bible tells us that the God against whom we have turned every day, the God whose goodness we've experienced and then rejected, is a God who has responded to that rejection by giving more grace. A God who, who was only giving us the faintest foreshadowing of his grace when he delivered Egypt from, or Israel from Egypt. A God who had far more grace in mind for his people. A God who had planned to send even his own son. The gospel tells us that God has sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life that we were meant to live but failed to live. That he sent his son Jesus intentionally to die. To die a death that we deserve to die for our sins against him. And that in his sending his son Jesus, his end game was not just to die for our sins, but to rise for our life. So that now we get all the worthiness transferred from Jesus to us so that we are pleasing to God and can know what it is to be his friends and can have the promises of a land in which we will live with him forever. This gospel that the, that the Exodus story only begins to unfold for us and that the story of Jesus reveals to us in its full beauty and glory is a gospel that hangs over us every day and is meant to express and explain what we can expect from God when we wake up in the morning. What this psalm is calling us to is to live like it. It's to do the active work of cataloging God's goodness to us in Christ, paying attention to it with relentless detail so that our perspective on what this day brings is marked by gratitude. 
And why is that so valuable? Hopefully it's obvious enough by now. When we, when we live with gratitude that comes from this kind of relentless cataloging of God's goodness, when we keep God's grace front and center, it changes our default posture towards God and other people. Think about this relentless, detailed focus on God's goodness and how surprising it is as the opposite of entitlement. I mean, you know about entitlement, right? None of us like it. We always feel icky when we see it in ourselves. We really resent it when we see it in other people. Nobody likes entitlement. We especially... We, but, but, but even though we especially don't like entitlement, I think we'd all have to agree that it comes really, really easy to us. Entitlement is me believing that as soon as I've got something, it's always supposed to have been mine and turning my attention to all the things that I don't have yet as if I deserve those too. When we, when we live as entitled people, all the good things are assumed and obvious. They're just defaults. So our attention is put onto, our relentless cataloging detailed attention is put on all the things maybe that other people have that we don't or the things that we want, hope to get, haven't gotten yet. Sometimes, friends, not all the time, but, but sometimes we're disappointed by life and hard on other people because we've lost sight of or grown bored by Jesus. Let me just say that one more time. I think this is a crucial lesson for us. And this is what the psalm is meant to counteract. Sometimes when we're disappointed by life or when we're hard on other people who've disappointed us, it's because we've lost sight of or just grown bored by Jesus. I heard somebody say recently that a sign of spiritual maturity is that we're easy to please and hard to offend. Part of me immediately resonated with that. I was like, yeah, that's spiritual maturity. And then almost a split second later, part of me doubled over as if I'd been punched in the gut. Ow! Easy to please. Hard to offend. I want more of that. And I think this psalm is teaching me how to get it. Whether, whether our entitlement as a posture towards God or other people has come from losing sight of or growing bored with Jesus, either way, thanksgiving's the antidote. Thanksgiving is how we push back. This psalm is a call to us to cultivate relentless surprise. It's one reason we just sang, And Can It Be? It's one of my favorite hymns, but also one of the most convicting when I sing it. Because my heart so rarely is engaged with what my words are saying. Did you guys notice that the first verse? This was written by a guy who, I guess when he wrote it, was just euphoric. Was surprised that God had loved him. And can it be, like seriously, that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Me? Died he for me? Who caused his pain? I mean, I'm the one who caused his pain. Why would he die for me? For me who him to death pursued? Seriously? I hounded him to the cross and didn't even appreciate it. Yet he died for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? This guy was blown away 
by the gospel. And I want to be. Don't you? And this psalm is showing us how. Because we won't get to where that writer got unless we do the work that Psalm 105 puts in front of us. Unless we, every day, lay down that string one square foot and pay attention to God's grace towards us in Jesus that we wake up with in the morning. Amazing. That's the first response to redemption that this psalm calls us to. Give thanks and all the work that goes into it. There's a second response, though, that I want to make sure you notice this morning. And man, this one has so encouraged me this week as I've thought more and more about it. I mean, at one level, this second response at first reading, I mean, it's just one little phrase, just like giving thanks. At first reading, it's just like, okay, obviously, let's move on. Call upon His name, verse 1 says. Give thanks to the Lord, that's number one. Call upon His name, that's number two. At one level, that just seems obvious too. But then the more I've thought about it, the further I've gone down this hole, the more encouraged and awestruck I have been at the fact that God invites us to call on Him again. Now think about this. Let me, uh, first, let me show you verse 4. It's, it's building on the same thing. So call upon His name. That's the short summary version. That's verse 1. Verse 4 gives us a little more detail. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Make it your ambition every day to pursue Him relentlessly for what He brings to your life. So I, I want to ask and answer a question. So why, why should we respond to redemption by asking for more? Why should we respond to God's redemption by asking for more, by calling on Him again? I'm going to give you three answers to that question that will take you a little bit further into what so surprised and encouraged me this week as I thought about this response. Why should we respond to redemption by asking for more from God? And the first thing that this psalm points us to is that we're invited to come to Him. We're invited to ask for more. This psalm comes from God. It's a gift to us. It starts with a call to call on Him. It's what He wants. And the first shade to this question about why to ask for more should be disbelief, I think. When we're moved by the scale of what He's given to us, I think it, make, it should make sense to us to wonder why we should ever expect to be given more. Uh, maybe you're one of those firm believers that the squeaky wheel is the one that gets the grease and you don't have any trouble pushing your advantage when you've gotten something good from somebody else. But I'm guessing more of you are probably gun-shy after a huge gift of grace. You know, somebody helps you move on a hot summer day well, you're probably waiting a little while before you ask them to do some free dog sitting for you, right? Probably. You're going to want to space out your big asks a little bit. Maybe give yourself a chance to pay it forward so you feel better, or better yet, even to pay it down a little bit by returning the favor directly to them before you ask again. You're going to want to recharge that account before you spend it down. You especially may feel this way if you grew up in the South like I did, where you know that there's a tendency to offer things you don't really want to give and resent the people who take you up on your offer. If you know that that's how it works, then you're probably especially hesitant to ask again after you've made a big ask that somebody, that somebody gave you. So, I think it's really interesting that this is the opposite lesson that the psalm is drawing for us. 
I mean, if the lesson we've drawn from our experience with, with one another is once you've asked for something big, don't ask again for a while, this psalm is drawing the exactly the opposite lesson. Because of what God has given you, ask him again. Come back to that well. It's there for the taking. Redemption is very reason that we're given here to keep on seeking him. Think about it like this. So, so this call comes before the work of the psalm, but we've just read the examples this psalm gives us of God's goodness. So let's now take those and put them in front of this call to call on him again. Think about it. God made promises to somebody who had no claim on him. He remembered those promises day in, day out. When his people needed him, he sent Moses. He sent Aaron. He led them out. When they were under the thumb of a powerful ruler they couldn't conquer, he sent flies and gnats and hail and locusts and more. He brought them out with silver and gold. They asked for food. He gave them manna and quail. They were thirsty he opened a rock and sent a river out of it. So by all means, this God who's given and given and given and given, go ask him again. See what happens. Go get some more. Seek his strength. Seek his presence. These facts of redemption that, that are the heart, the heart of this psalm, they're God's invitation to come and ask for what we need. And they're a promise to us that we are no bother to him. It reminds me of Romans 8. When Paul says, if he's given you Jesus, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? It's precisely his gift of grace that invites us to ask for more. Friends, that's why, just, just for a little peek behind the curtain of why we do things the way we do on Sunday mornings, that's why every week after confession of sin, where we acknowledge our need for God's grace in our lives. After we hear an assurance of His goodness to us from the gospel, after we've sung songs that give thanks for that goodness, have you noticed that, that after that sequence, we come and ask Him for things? We take Him up on His offer. We claim the right He's given to us, earned by Jesus, to bring anything we need before Him with a promise that he loves us and wants to help us. This psalm puts that response in front of us. Ask him again. Why should we expect more? Why should we respond to God's redemption by asking for more? second reason to do that is that it shows gratitude. I and mean, this is a surprising one to me. A commentator that I was reading this week pointed me this direction. I think this is a really important nuance that we need to grasp this morning. When we ask God for more grace, after we've experienced a lot of grace already, we're actually showing gratitude to Him. Now, of course, it's possible to ask for more because you're dissatisfied by what you've been given. It is possible that you ask for more because what you got wasn't good enough, wasn't satisfying to you. You could ask again and keep coming back over and over, from lack of gratitude. Like maybe you, uh, you go to a wedding reception with some dainty gourmet finger foods and feel the need to stop at Crystal on the way home. I mean, hypothetically, let's just say that happens. That's a statement about what you got and why it wasn't good enough. That was surely Israel's posture toward God time and again. I mean, we're going to talk about that next week. There's a lot of times where they ask for more from a heart of dissatisfaction and discontent towards God that wasn't okay. But there is another way to ask for more that comes from a different heart towards God that makes an altogether different statement about the quality of what he's already given us by his grace. 
This kind of asking for more is a lot like asking for seconds after a fantastic meal because you can't get enough. You love it so much. You've got to have another slice of that key lime pie, hypothetically. when, When you come back for more because you loved it, well, then that statement, that's honoring to the object of your desire. That's not discontent. That's not dissatisfaction. That's craving for what you can't get anywhere else. And that pleases him. When, you, when you've been helped and you ask for more help, God gets glory. And friends, that's especially true when what you want from him most is not just his strength, verse 4, but his presence, verse 4. Seek his presence continually. And what this psalm has in mind is not some sort of transactional relationship with God. That's the kind that's most often going to be discontent. You know, I didn't get what I wanted, now I want more. Uh, so what do we have to do to make that happen? That's never what, this, what, what, what the Bible calls for in our relationships to God. That is dishonoring to Him and treats Him as a means to an end. Next week we'll talk more about what that looks like. Think of that response to God, that asking for more, as the kind of 20-something... Um, adult child who can't afford his own tastes and cables home send money, right? Where that's the sum total of the relationship. Think of this kind of asking more. This seek his presence, his strength and his presence continually as a lot more like the, the toddler treats his mother. So at that level, yes, of course, toddlers are going to be obsessed about what they want and don't have yet. There's plenty of sin involved with that. Uh, but, but, but there's also a level at which the toddler really just wants to be nearby. I mean, I watched my three little kids follow their mother around the house. I mean, the image that came to me yesterday was of, uh, of a whale shark that we'd seen recently at an aquarium, which always had this school of fish just swimming with it wherever it goes, you know. Have you ever seen that on one of these nature documentaries? You've got one big fish and then a bunch of other school of fish. That just, they're just going to follow them, every movement. You just stick with them. That's kind of what my house looks like, you know. Lindsay wanders around the house, and then she's got three little ones just hovering, following every move. And, and yes, of course they're going to ask her for things. And sometimes, of course, there's going to be discontent involved with that. But at, at base, what, they're, what they want is her presence continually. Because they know good things come when she's nearby. They know with her nearby, they can face whatever is coming. They'll have what they need. And that honors her. It it exhausts her too, of course. But it honors her. It honors her. It's beautiful, actually. And and that's the model that this psalm tells us. It puts in in front of us for our relationship to God. Of course we could abuse it. But we don't have to. And, 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 And being holy in our relationship to God in response to His grace doesn't mean shutting down our need for things, our desire for things. It means it means coming to Him and ultimately seeking Him, not just what He gives. It seeks His grace as a daily dependence, a desperate and immediate and open and honest, intentional and even relentless pursuit of Him in the midst of life. When we call on God and ask for more, in response to the grace He's already shown us, it shows gratitude. And there's one last reason to call on him. Once you've received grace, to ask for more. And that last reason I just want to put in front of you is 
it also comes through in this psalm, but is so more, much more fully explained in the rest of the, of the scriptures. We call on him in response to his grace because he, he never fails. You call on him again because he, he will not fail you. One of the main themes in this psalm I tried to bring out when I was reading it, all behind these interventions that it lists one by one, is God's memory of his promises to his people. He remembers, verse 8. He remembers, verse 42. Bookends to this wealth of God's goodness in the life of his people. He doesn't forget and he always comes through. It's that dependability and trustworthiness that drives us to keep on seeking him continually. And friends, it's that dependability and trustworthiness, the promise of it, that drives us to keep on asking for him, especially when he seems distant and you're not sure he's listening. I uh, uh, used some of my downtime uh, while other friends were preaching in the last couple of weeks to read uh, a memoir by um, John Bunyan, who was a faithful preacher several hundred years ago, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a really powerful memoir of how he became a Christian. And it didn't come easy for him. There was a long time in his life before he was a Christian where he was back and forth, back and forth. He knew the gospel. He had some level of trust or confidence in God, but not enough. And he was just racked by fear and uncertainty, insecurity about whether or not he was really a Christian, whether or not God would really have him, whether God was nearby. There was this one moment where he recalled some friend said to him, as he was in this moment of uncertainty and angst, not sure if he could fully commit, not sure if God would be there. The friend said to him, suggested to him, search the scriptures, start in Genesis, go to Revelation, and see who has ever trusted him and been confounded. That was his wonderful old English way of putting it. Go look. See if anyone who ever trusted in him has been confounded. I'd encourage you to, to, to take up that search yourself if you're struggling this morning. If you search the scriptures, even the examples in this psalm, you'll find people who waited for the Lord for decades without an answer. You'll find people who sought after him when darkness kept him hidden from view. A lot of psalms talk about that. You'll find examples of people who went through things they never would have chosen and, and really never came to understand. But friends, you will never find anyone who trusted in God and was confounded. And you will not be the first. The God who calls us to remember also remembers. So ask Him. Continually. Don't stop. There's one last response to redemption I want to show you from this psalm. This one comes out of verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 began with the call to give thanks. That's the first thing we tried to notice. That's fueled by what verse 5 talks about, remembering the wondrous works that God has done, His miracles, the judgments He uttered. Then verse 1 moves on to call upon His name. Verse 4 tells us more what that looks like. Seek His strength and His presence continually. And then verse 1 gives us this third response. Praise God to others. That's a, that's a healthy Necessary response to God's grace in your life. Praise God 
to other people. Here's how verses 1 and 2 put it. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Now, of course, this praising that He's talking about, this telling about His wondrous works, that's what praising is. Saying what's true about Him. Of course, that's directed to God. He is the audience for it, and it pleases Him to be praised, as it should. But what strikes me about the way this psalm frames it is that this praise of God is actually aimed towards other people that you want to know about God and to experience His goodness themselves. So, yeah, you're praising Him, and that pleases Him, but you're, you're making known those deeds, the praise is aimed at peoples who maybe don't know what He's done and what they could experience from Him. You're singing to him, of course. You're singing praises to him, verse 2. But you're telling of all his wondrous works. You're aiming the truth, the praiseworthiness of God outward at other people. This is one of the main goals that the Exodus put in front of us over and over and over again. God was doing what he was doing in, in Egypt, not just for Israel's sake, but for the sake of the world. He wanted to make his name known so that the nations would know who he was and what they could expect from him if they, like Israel, would trust in him. Israel's purpose was missionary. And this psalm is an invitation to those who have known who he is to take up that same work themselves and to tell other people about it. But the tone of this call isn't scolding. There's nothing here that's meant to guilt you. These are exclamation points coming on the end of these sentences. And those weren't in the original Hebrew. But I think they're a good capturing of what the tone of this psalm is meant to be. Like, of, of course you'd want to make known his deeds among the peoples. You try keeping that to yourself and see how that goes. You'll be miserable. I think that's the tone. It speaks of, of praising God to other people as a kind of inevitable response to redemption. As if, of course, we'll do it. You can't keep it in or stop talking about it. One of my favorite uh, C.S. Lewis observations comes in his book on the Psalms and, and what he says there about praise. So uh, he's got this great collection of essays about different aspects of the Psalms and his journey with them as a believer who, who used them for many years of his life. One of the essays is about praising because it was one of the barriers that he had at one point to really enjoying the Psalms. He'd come across all these, praising, all these praisings and all these calls to praise and to him it seemed arrogant. It seemed like God was doing something that we would condemn in a person if they did it. You know, if you, if you are always touting your own achievements and always making sure that everybody acknowledged them, we would see you as an arrogant person and no one would want to be around you. And so Lewis was kind of feeling that gut reaction to all the praising that goes on in the Psalms. And so it put him on this journey of, of reflection, searching. What's this all about? What he realized as he thought more and more about it, and this, what this essay puts in front of us, is that in fact, the whole world is full of praising. It's not unique to the Psalms, to this call that God gives us there. The world is full of praising. And what he realized is two things. Both of them are very helpful for us in understanding what this psalm is calling us to. What he realized is that first, when you enjoy something, that enjoyment is naturally going to overflow into praise without thinking about it. And the only thing that's going to stop you from praising what you enjoy is maybe your own shyness or the fear that you're boring other people, you know? 
I mean, when you come out of that early phase in a relationship where you just can't talk, stop talking about all the details of the person, no one really cares, and you start to realize that no one really cares about the cute thing that they said that last week, it's really only realizing that you're boring people that stops you. When you really enjoy something, the natural response is to talk about it, and to talk about it, and to talk about it. When you love something, you praise it. You'd be miserable not to. Or as Lewis put it, this is a quote from his essay, my difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, talking about God, what we delight to do and even can't help doing about everything else we value. He continued, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Isn't that true? Like Part of what we enjoy is talking about it. There's just something missing if we just keep it inside. Our joy is made full and complete by the praising of the thing we enjoy. That's the first thing that he noticed that helped him and helps us know why this praising is such good news. The second thing is also really important. He noticed that when you experience something you love, you want people that you love to enjoy it too. It isn't enough just for you to enjoy it. In fact, something about your joy is incomplete unless it's shared. People who love something, he wrote, spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? And that, Lewis says, is why the psalmist is always calling people to praise. That's why we're called to do the same. You see, so this, this call to praising God to others as a response to redemption, it comes from two points. It comes from a deep personal engagement a heart-level and gut-level love for, an experience of God's goodness in our life. And then it comes from a deep, instinctive, experiential love for other people that we can't stand not to know what we've known. When you love something and you love someone who's not seen or experienced what you love, it's miserable not to talk about it. Uh, over the summer already, I've read, I've read a book that I cannot stop talking about. If you want to know what it is, come ask me later. I'll tell you. But I've been relentlessly pushing it on my friends. Because I have some friends that, I, that one of the things we love about one another is similar taste in books. And as soon as I'm reading this book, I mean, even as I'm reading it and loving it and, and, and not able to put it down, I'm already thinking of this Rolodex of people that I've got to tell about this book. And I'm thinking, I've got to get there before anybody else tells them. Because part of my joy is like being the one to give them this gift of this book, you know. I'm thinking about I'm making that plan the whole time I'm on the beach flipping page to page and ever since I got back I've been telling them about it I can't stop and I don't want to because I know that this book will be good for them and I know that when they love it as much as I did that'll be good for the book it will be getting the credit that it deserves for being awesome these two poles are pulling up my praise on on both ends my love for people that I know will enjoy this, and my love for this thing that I can't stop talking about. And I think that's what this, that's what this psalm is calling us to. When you've experienced God's grace in redemption, like the inevitable result, if you really have experienced it, and if you really love other people, even the nations, will be to make sure they get to know about it too. You won't keep it to yourself, but you'll praise God to others. What I've realized and been convicted by this week is that when my evangelism is languishing, if you will, as all too often it does, it isn't really about a lack of courage. It certainly isn't about a lack of opportunity. It's probably about a lack of love. 
Ultimately, it's a lack of love. Maybe it's for the people who don't know. Maybe a lack of love for the God that they don't know, but either way, a lack of love. And so the hope that I'm finding in this psalm and the clarified perspective that I hope you'll find here too is that to be effective witnesses as we've been called to be, to be lives that are overflowing with praise, then what we got to do is take up what this call, what this psalm called us to at the very beginning. The relentless, ceaseless, detailed and careful cataloging of everything we have known from God's hand that we didn't deserve. To take up the work of detailed gratitude, knowing that the downstream effect of it is going to be that we can't stop talking about it to other people. I wonder if, if you don't use today as an opportunity to put this straight into practice. To think not just about experiences you've had of God's goodness through Christ in your life, but to think about how you might use conversations that you'll have today to praise Him to others. Friends, maybe it'll start with the way you respond to this sermon. You know, in just a moment we're going to sing, and then the service is going to be over. And Lord willing, a bunch of us are going to hang around in here and talk to one another. I wonder if you don't take that opportunity as a chance to talk not just about the, the interesting things that have happened this weekend, as important as those may be, but to talk to somebody about this psalm and what you've experienced in it. I wonder who else you'll see today. Will you go to lunch with someone? Do you expect to see a neighbor across a fence this afternoon? Or maybe tomorrow morning when you get to work, who will there be that you could speak to of God's goodness in your life? Think about this psalm as an invitation to get specific and to relentlessly pursue conversations that aren't the same as they would be if God had not loved you so well in Jesus. I want to pray now that God will will give us what we need to take up this call and that he'll bless it with fruit when we do that. Let's pray together and then we'll continue to sing. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your gospel and we pray that you would help us to respond to it in the way that you meant for us to. Thank you for Jesus whose life was perfect. For Jesus, whose death, though undeserved, was sufficient to cover all of our sin. And for Jesus, who lives now praying for us so that we can take up this call that you've put into our lives. Help us to respond in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.